encourage you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Exodus chapter 1. Last week we started this new series in the book and the event that is Exodus. And we'll take a few breaks throughout the church calendar year, but we're going to go all the way through the 40 chapters of Exodus, observing and responding to this God of holiness and power and deliverance that we're confronted with. We've learned already that there is great hope for the people of Israel, even while they are in Egypt. This is the place that God has brought them, the place that He said they would go, and, uh, and He is multiplying them in this place. The promised seed, the promised offspring of Abram uh, is coming true, and that's going to continue in the rest of this chapter. So I'm going to read uh, for us from uh, verse 8 to the end of chapter 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Raamses, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So the midwives, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt, dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I think those are hard words to read, hard words to hear and process. What is God doing? How is this going to end up? Let's go to him in prayer together. Father, a text like this raises so many questions, even though we've read it or heard it perhaps many, many times before. Lord, we need to hear it now. We need to hear of your faithfulness and your work in the midst of suffering and oppression. Lord, we cannot expect to hear and to understand this word and to apply it faithfully to our lives apart from your help. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us now, that you would conform us to the likeness of your Son, We would be uh, encouraged and equipped as we go from this place. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. While the temperature was dipping below zero last week around here, kind of like it is 
right now, I guess at least below freezing. Uh, took the kids to the, the bayou that runs near our house because it was all frozen over. Decided we could have some fun on the ice. And so they were walking on the ice and throwing rocks to see if they could crack the ice that they're standing on. And I'm standing there thinking, well, how wet am I going to get? How far do I have to go to rescue them um, if they do break through the ice? But we had a good time um, sliding around and throwing ice pieces and watching them shatter. Um, and I, you know, in Michigan, that would be no big deal. But in, but in Arkansas, to have a body of water like that frozen, we thought was a pretty big deal. So we were going to take advantage of that. But uh, don't try this if you're up in Canada, which is somewhat surprising, because if you want to play on the ice up there, you may be faced with heavy fines and restrictions. And uh, there was a family who uh, was faced with a $25,000 fine for... Now, this is Canada. There, there's a lot of ice in Canada, and there's temperatures that support ice in Canada. And so they were going to make this hockey rink in their front yard, and they were faced with this fine because of liability. Local hockey club, another part of Canada, uh, they were going to use a pond for their hockey league. And the city council said, no, you can't do that. Liability. Another part of Canada, um, a mother took her snow shovel, went to the pond behind their house, and she was shoveling it off so her kids could play in the ice, and she was fined $100 uh, for modifying the land in a way likely to cause injury. Um, yeah, what's going on here? I mean, why can't families, neighborhood kids, come together and have a pickup game of hockey? In Canada, there's nothing else to do in the winter. Right? Um, it's fear. Fear of injury. Fear of lawsuit. Um, maybe fear of angry hockey players. You know, breaking into fights. But it's fear, and fear is a very powerful motivator. Many of our decisions have fear you know, behind them. You know, we, we cook our food a certain amount of time because we fear the illness that may result if we don't. Um, you know, just this last week, we had a gentleman with a, a pack walking around the house spraying for bugs that we fear may take over living in Arkansas. Um, a four-year-old calls a local police uh, because the house that she's just moved into may have monsters, and so she needs a full, a full scan of the area, um, which she did. Fear. We don't let our kids roam the neighborhoods as we did. And I can still say we because those of you sitting here could do that. You went around the neighborhood and, and, and play. We don't, we don't let our kids do that anymore. Fear. Uh, we're connected by an invisible cord with that device in our pocket and in our purse. And if we really get underneath it, why? Fear. Fear of missing out on something. Fear of being missed and the consequences of that. Um, now, fear is important in the world. I want us to understand that. It's important in a world broken by sin. The natural order has been corrupted under the curse. And so there's plenty of things that can hurt and damage and kill us. And a God-given fear moves us uh, to protect. But fear can also be damaging. Fear can also be cri crippling and, and move us to do some strange things. Desperate things. Which is what we see happening with the new Pharaoh in Egypt. 
Exodus chapter 1, the most powerful man in the world is afraid. And this fear moves him in a particular direction. So the story starts with Pharaoh giving some instruction. It ends uh, with words from Pharaoh. So we're going to look at the text in relationship to him. The rebellion of Pharaoh and resistance to Pharaoh. Rebellion of and resistance to. And we learn right at the outset that there is a major political shift that takes place in Egypt. Uh, This new Pharaoh, this new regime no longer recognize Joseph. They no longer recognize the, the contract or agreements that had been uh, put in place between the Egyptians and the Israelites. So there's no sense of duty anymore, no sense of obligation from this Pharaoh to uh, the Hebrew people. Um, he saw them growing, and as the Israelites grew, his fear grew right alongside, um, right alongside that. But what is he afraid of? You know, are the Israelites bullying the Egyptians? You know, are, they, are they secretly stealing animals, livestock? Are they making weapons? You know, rise up and, and take over? Um, and recall that, that the Israelites were living independently as a shepherd people in the northeast part of Egypt, in that area of Goshen. So they were taking care of, of the livestock and the animals. You can go back to Genesis 47 you want to see that initial arrangement. But what's he afraid of? It's a classic fear for anyone who's, who has power, any group that has power, and their sphere of influence begins to grow. It's a loss of control. A loss of power. Pharaoh is so, he's motivated by this self-concern, this self-preservation for his own life, his own power. So if he's going to keep control, then this growing people must be subject to him. They must know that he's in control. He needs to exert this power and slow the population. So he restructures society. The Israelites go from independent shepherds now to forced slave labor, doing all kinds of different jobs. Making brick for his building projects is the main assignment. And one obvious question that comes from this is, how does he do this? How do you get away with such a major restructuring of society? I think the answer is right here in verse 10. Um, if any powerful regime you know, wants to oppress or wants to eliminate a people, then they have to define that people as a threat. A danger to the greater good. And if that threat is then embraced by the rest of the population, well, then it becomes, persecution becomes a norm. Um, see this over and over throughout history, certainly in the history of the church, uh, as Christians are defined as a threat to the good order of society. Then they can be destroyed without pushback. I think of the rise of, of Nazi Germany in the last century. The Jews, the gypsies... They were defined through the propaganda of the state, through the media, as internal enemies. And so what started out then as restrictions on where they could go and what they could do turned into ordinary execution in a matter of years. I mean, that's a bit frightening. Think how quickly fear can work in the human heart that is set on self-protection and comfort and safety. Very, very sneaky fear is. I think 
kind of like the, the colorless, odorless carbon monoxide. It sneaks in there and it kills its victim before they even know what's happening. Fear is like this. It can be hard to identify. But fear, it, it's just a fuel for anger. Fear fuels suspicion and hatred. You know, when I get angry, when I get irritated, things aren't going the way that I expect. I'm just having a hard time letting go of something. I'm trying to ask myself this question, what am I afraid of? You know, what, what fear is underneath this? Oftentimes it is a loss of control or a loss of status, a loss of comfort. Try this. Keep trying it. Next time you, you blow up at your children or spouse or someone else within the family or have one of these stress-induced funks, ask yourself that question. What, what am I afraid of? When we do that, then we can ask, is fueling this fear justifiable? Is it worthy of our time and energy as blood-bought children of the King? It's a love for God, a love for, for Christ is given in the Gospel that drives away other loves. Predominantly the love of self, where all the fear of loss of control and loss of comfort and power resides. John writes in his first letter, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we, we love, we can attack fear because he first loved us. And for the one whose sins have been washed away through the blood of Christ, there is no more punishment. Not now, not ever. Jesus has taken that punishment, credited his faithfulness, his perfect response in fear to us. So Christian, why do you punish yourself with fear? What are you believing that the love of God in Christ has freed you from? In Jesus, we do not have the spirit that keeps us in fear. We have a spirit of sonship, of daughtership. Our Father knows our every need. He's the stronghold of our life. Of whom, of what shall we be afraid? We see this progression in Egypt where there is fear in the heart of the wicked. Uh, you know, Pharaoh's fear moves him here to cruelty, to oppression of the Israelites. Um, the hardships of slave labor would, would let the Israelites know who was in control and by human calculation and experience would stem the population. I mean, families in this situation, would be separated for long periods of time. There'd be disease, there'd be malnourishment. This type of population control was proven to work. But here's where Pharaoh's plan backfires. We know he did not know Joseph, and he certainly did not know Joseph's God. He is the God of Adam, of Noah, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Joseph, and all these people who are multiplying in the northeast part of Egypt. And despite Pharaoh's best efforts, they continue to multiply. The more they're persecuted, the more God overrules, which is exactly what he said he would do to the patriarchs. So we're getting a much better idea here of who controls the population, and it's not Pharaoh. 
But he doesn't give up. He continues the, the propaganda. We'll uh, initiate phase two here in these verses. But before we get there, I think it's really important for us to see that the suffering and hardship that God's people experienced uh, while in Egypt. Verses 13 and 14 are intentionally draw this out. The Egyptians were ruthless. The work was hard. So they're, they're living in bitterness and anguish. There was disease and death even though their numbers are growing. You think, these are God's people. These are God's chosen. He's fulfilling His promise to them, and yet He's allowing them to suffer like this. This is real suffering, real hurt. They're not hauling around the bricks thinking, this is really, really hard. But the neighbors next door just had a baby, and God is good, so we'll just carry on. And everything I just said was true from the mouth of that Israelite. It was really hard. The neighbor next door may have had a baby. Um, God is good, but it still hurts. It's still painful. And the suffering, though God is at work through it, is, is still real suffering at the hands of evil. You know, Pharaoh did not know God. He did not align with the plan of God for his people. He has no regard for the promised seed. He wants to wipe it out. He wants to stop this future. So he's pushing the, the Israelites as the enemy of the state when he is an enemy of God and of his people. And the people suffer under the attacks of the enemy. You and I suffer this way. The church suffers under the attacks of the enemy. It's a suffering that's not overlooked by God. It, it it moves his heart even as he allows it to accomplish his purpose. Again, I think of the early church and the Roman persecution. I think of the time of the Reformation. Terrorist attack. That is nothing new in the life of the church. just looks a little different today. And I know this is hard for us to swallow because our lives are so free from physical persecution. But know that that makes us the exception among Christians the world over, not the norm. The church, even in the West, is persecuted. It's oppressed by the enemy, but it looks different. It happens in different ways. The propaganda machine is in full force. Deceiving, changing attitudes, growing fear among the general population. Fear of what? Christians? Going to rise up, throw a coup? local government, the Trump administration? Um, no. No, it's fear of losing perceived control. Losing a perceived autonomy that can live without God and what God values. And so the, the voice of the Christian, the values of the, the Christian who, who stand upon the authority of God's Word is a threat to this. That's where the fear is. The fear of, of having to come face to face and do business with the living God that the Christian represents. So then what was once a, a sound argument, a morally sound argument, is no longer argued against. It is either outright ignored or it's hate speech. Right? Um, ignored or then prosecuted as criminal. Persecution. Suffering. I mean, look, look at what has happened in the discussion around sexuality 
and gender and marriage in the last five years. Maybe that's too long to even look. But five years. I mean, what was considered just abominable, not even on the table of discussion, is, is the norm now. To talk about homosexuality, I mean, that's old news. Shouldn't be. Discussion isn't over. But it's just considered the norm, the accepted lifestyle in our society. And so that natural progression of heart rebellion, it has to go to the question of gender. Who decides gender and when? So this mass confusion just spreads across the land and undermines the truth according to God's design. And so the church must speak into this with wisdom, with grace, tactfulness. We can't expect an open door. We can't expect even sound argument. Oppression, suffering, and just just the hardships of life. Our God governs these things. He overrules. He intercedes and grows His church for His glory, for the glory of Christ. He loves the ones He's chosen. He's purchased them, His own blood, as the purchase price. So do we know what it is to suffer? It could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual. Then we know just a little bit more of Christ. We share in the suffering of the one who learned obedience in his suffering. That we might also share in his glory. The people of Israel are crying out. It's going from bad to worse. Where are you, God? Something has to be done or we're finished. And suffering showed the people then. It shows us that God must act. We must have a Savior or we are finished. Under the oppression and slavery of sin. He must deliver the people that He's multiplying. And it's more than certain that He will. So we don't want it. We don't want the suffering. We don't have to like the suffering. That's very real and very painful. But we must not despise the severity of God's hand. I like one phrase I read this last week. It said, God is planting the seeds of redemption in the barren soil of despair and death. His purpose in suffering is always redemptive. Always. It's the very way of the cross. The Lord saves through suffering. This is why Peter could write to the suffering church, to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Pharaoh, whose name we don't know, and that's pretty significant, because in the great story in the long run, it doesn't matter. He doesn't need to be remembered. He sets the example for cruelty, the instruction that he gives to these midwives, whose names we do know, and that's really, really important. The text is just screaming, pay attention to Shifra and Puah. Whatever they're going to do, whatever they're going to say, it's really important to the story. So here's phase two of population control. It's not open public genocide yet. It's behind the scenes murder. As soon as you see that it's a male, right at delivery, kill it. Mom may not even know that it's happened. And certainly those outside the place of birth wouldn't, wouldn't know. And Pharaoh, he could have spoken directly to these women. It's not likely. Uh, the message was probably given to them as those having oversight of all others who were helping um, with 
uh, with the women giving birth. Just two for the whole nation of Israel is a little unlikely. Um, so Shifra and Pua, they take this message from the most powerful man in the known world and they act on it. How do they act on it? Fear. They act in fear. They act in great fear, but it's a very different fear from that of Pharaoh. There's a sharp contrast here between these women and Pharaoh. So these gales are filled with fear, but it leads them in a different direction than it did Pharaoh. Verse 17 says that these women feared God, and it's because they feared God that they would not murder uh, all these baby boys. Now, Shifra and Pua did not have a copy of the moral law of God in their back pocket. It says, oh, don't murder. They didn't have that yet. But they knew that taking this helpless, innocent life was a great offense to God. It's possible they were familiar with uh, the word we read in Genesis 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. They, will, they would not murder those who have been made in the image of God. I mean, that would have been the very opposite of what they were called to do, to welcome and to nurture these newborns. Just think of the courage, tremendous courage, to respond the way they did. I mean, to disobey Pharaoh would have meant certain death. But they considered it a greater danger to disobey God so that their fear of God surpasses the fear of Pharaoh and moves them in the direction of, of obedience. And we can't conclude here that they had a, a saving faith in the God of Israel uh, from what we're given. Um, but they wanted to do was, what was right. The fear of God enabled them to stand in the face of opposition. This is the spirit of the apostles in Acts chapter 5. After being told to keep their mouths shut about Jesus... I mean, they're acting and speaking as if what they believe, everyone else should believe too. How dare they? And Peter responds, we must obey God rather than men. And the apostles had received the very word of the Lord, the Lord of life, who, who gives them this word, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So the consequences of disobeying a holy God far outlast the command, off with your head. And by the grace of God, who isn't even mentioned until verse 17, Shifra and Pua knew this. And a fear of God really is basic to true faith. It's not a, it's not a fear of It's not a terror type of fear, a fear of punishment, though that is a very real and justifiable fear for the ungodly, for the ungodliness of our sin. You see, if our sin does not disturb us in any way, if we can sort of gloss over it with the, you know, God loves me and I'm saved, without any thought to its offense, to a holy and just God who's righteous wrath burns against that sin, then we need, we need to repent. Soak in the character of God. For there is no fear of God before the eyes of the sinner. But when you know and believe that the righteous wrath of God has burned against Christ for you, 
that punishment has been removed, then fear moves toward God and not away from Him. There's this, this awe and allegiance to God that requires obedience to Him above anything else or anyone else. So do you and I believe that living in the fear of God, obeying God is worth the risk, that it's actually the safest course of action for us? These women believed it was a safer course of action to not kill these babies at the risk of their own lives than to go along with what was expected. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., we're actually remembering, celebrating his actions and the movement as a result of that this weekend, tomorrow. Uh, he preached a very powerful sermon uh, in the late, late 1954 called Transformed Nonconformist. And the message that he was conveying he said Christians are not called to be uh, thermometers conforming to the temperature of society, but called to be thermostats, actually setting, serving to transform the temperature of society. It's a great illustration. And then he brought it right to the issue of the moment. Here's what he said. I've, I've seen many white people who sincerely oppose segregation and discrimination, but they never took a real stand against it because of fear of standing alone. Are you willing not... Are you willing not just to stand, but to stand alone? And then a year later, just over a year later, Rosa Parks, who had heard that sermon, got on the bus and sat alone. <laughs> not what was expected. And we know how that triggered a series of events that changed the temperature of the land. Are we willing to stand and to stand alone as the safest course of action in obedience to God? Um, you know, where we're told today, we see it all around us, you know, to live together outside the confines of marriage, sort of experiment with sex because it's, after all, it, the message is it's really only about self-gratification so that when it's no longer gratifying or the relationship actually takes work and sacrifice, then, then we're gone. Time to move on. The stand, the message that must be heard is that it's dangerous. It's dangerous physically, emotionally, spiritually, eternally. Okay? When we maneuver outside of God's design, we have left the path of safety. Think how debt-saturated we are as a society. I mean, it's considered the norm to live with vast amounts of, of debt. And the true source of God's Word says that, that debt enslaves. It's a very poor master. Think of all the fears that come out of debt. What's the safest course of action? And do we believe this enough to take it if we're the only ones doing it? And we go on with lots of examples here. We need to hear that the fear of God moves us toward Him in obedience and faithfulness. So Pharaoh confronts these women, um, likely after several years had gone by. He still sees that there's a lot of boys, in fact, more than there were before. Um, there's been all kinds of discussion and commentary about the response of Shipra and Pua to Pharaoh. I mean, is this an all-out lie? that they tell him? Um, does the end justify the means here? I mean, even men with names like Augustine and John Calvin 
have said that they were absolutely wrong, that they sinned here against God in their response. Uh, it's, a very, it's a complex scenario, um, as most cases of civil, civil disobedience are. Um, there's, there's different motives, different goals that come into play depending on the circumstances. I mean, I, I think of, again, in the, this last century, as the Germans would come to the doors of those who were hiding the Jews and say, have you seen this person? Have you seen them? Nope, haven't seen him. Now that could be they hadn't seen him in the last five minutes or half a day or what have you. So there was, there was truth, but maybe not the whole truth. And then you have to take into consideration whether those who are intent on evil are deserving of the whole truth. Um, it's not easy to decipher uh, these types of things. But I think there was enough truth here and what they said to make it believable for Pharaoh with the Spirit of God uh, constraining him. I mean, perhaps Egyptian women were more passive in the birthing process. Uh, and the Hebrew women were more involved. They were more attentive to what was happening. Um, it could also be that, that the word had spread throughout the Israelites. That if, you know, if you're in labor, if you're going to have a baby, then you know, Wait to call the midwife until absolutely necessary. Because if they're holding the little one when the midwife who's, who's coming to, uh, to help and, and so forth, then, then it's no longer a secret um, to try and murder that child behind the scenes, which is what Pharaoh was trying to pull off. So enough truth where, where Shifra and Pua did not believe it was necessary in the fear of God, perhaps to give the whole truth. So there are times when civil disobedience is necessary. Um, but these times, they require much prayer, much wisdom, uh, and great care. Uh, the church is called to suffer. We need to remember that. Even, even suffer violence for the sake of Christ. And this portion in Exodus is a case in point here. Uh, there's real blessing in this, as Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. But when the government demands what God forbids or forbids what, what God commands, then we must obey God rather than men. We must obey consistent with the whole teaching of Scripture. I mean, folks can get pretty adamant. And they'll take a stand. It's pro-life, Second Amendment, whatever. And they'll take a stand. They'll pluck a verse out of the Bible say, this is God's will. Um, we need to... Consider the greater story of redemption, the gospel. Um, Nonviolent disobedience. I mean, that, that concedes the police function to where it belongs, where God has ordained it to the, to the police. Um, we live in a, a democratic system, faithfulness to a democratic system. That means Christians can and should go to the highest court if there is substantial and, and clear violation of justice. And we've taken other, other means to try and, try and correct that situation. Um, there's not a clear line here. It requires uh, much spiritual wisdom and prayer, counsel. Um, but the Lord blesses Shipra and Pua for their actions. He continues to grow His people in their suffering, in the face of these very difficult decisions. The Lord saves. The Lord strengthens His people. I think, you know, Pharaoh's population control plan is completely foiled here. Um, 
even as he ramps it up to the extreme. Now, now it would be the norm, it would be socially acceptable to toss Hebrew boys into the Nile. It's going from bad to worse. God, where are you? There's more of us, but the Nile is swallowing up the promised seed. Pharaoh stands against God's plan. His fear moves him away from the Lord in cruelty, while the fear of these midwives aligns them with God in His saving plan. The Lord intends fear as a way to faithfulness. Nothing can thwart the plans of God. Absolutely nothing. No matter how bad it gets, and we see here it can get pretty bad. God's people need help. They need a Savior, someone who can deliver them if there's going to be any hope, any deliverance from this oppression. We need help. We need a Savior in the midst of our own sinful suffering and the suffering at the hands of others. And as sure as God multiplies His people, He will deliver. As sure as God has given us the living Word, He has delivered Let's pray together. Lord, it's hard for us to see in the midst of confusion, midst of suffering, oppression, some of which we're familiar with, so much of which we are not, that you are at work, that you are faithful to your promises, each and every one. That you are growing your people. You are, are working in us. Lord, may our fear of you, our awe and wonder move us to faithfulness and to obedience. Lord, to stand for what is true, good, and right, even if it means standing alone. Lord, we know we are never alone, for you are present with us. Encourage us in this. Move in us as we go into this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.